0: We're kind of wrapping up. we got today and next week, and we're done with this topic. Uh, It's an enormous topic. This is kind of where we've been. In the last couple weeks, just looking at what should our involvement be, staying away from civic religion, looking at the model of maybe withdrawing and setting apart and what we thought about that. Last week, we just encountered the issue, can we even change culture? Do we even have it within our means? And we kind of had a little bit of a sobering uh, response last week Uh, Looking at the work of J.D. Hunter on that. Tonight we're going to talk about Christian political engagement. You know, so far we've just been talking about society and culture. Tonight we're zeroing just on politics. If you were to critique the way that Christians do politics in this country, what would the critique be? So just think about that for a moment. That's going to be your task. Uh, We've added one more book to the list. You know that this series is trying to cram a lot of information if we've been in it for five weeks and there's already six books. Um, And I just want to tell you, I cannot do this serious justice. I've just tried. There is so much to try to pack into the subject of what can we do for society. But I can not tell you this tonight. As I read these books, I wish you were sitting there looking over my shoulder reading with me. Because one of the things that I keep encountering over and over is this feeling that I have in the middle of the week as I'm reading one more book, one more book, There's this temptation that's inside of me to think like, why should we even care? Shouldn't we just do something and just stop thinking about it? But I think there is some value to thought, and next week I'm going to try to wrap it up with all of the observations because there's so much information in these books, I can barely summarize it in a coherent way. Some of the ideas that are flying around, as you can probably tell, there's not much agreement among many of the people who think about this. But I do believe this. As a group of people who are really trying to dig deeper, we've got to have an opinion and we've got to have a direction. They might even differ. But the biggest mistake would be to just not care. As you'll see tonight, a lot of people care very deeply. We're going to look at why. Next week, I hope to maybe give you a better answer as to what we can actually do as a result of all this thinking. Let me start here tonight. This is a quote from the Reverend Jerry Falwell, I should say the late Jerry Falwell. There's a quote in 1965, he said this, Believing the Bible as I do, I would find it impossible to stop preaching the pure, saving gospel of Jesus Christ and begin doing anything else, including fighting communism or participating in civil rights reforms. Preachers are not called to be politicians, but to be soul winners. Nowhere are we commissioned to reform the externals. The gospel does not clean up outside, but rather regenerates the inside. That was Jerry Falwell in 1965. Kind of a denouncement of politics. What was going on in 1965? Anyone know? Civil
1: rights movement.
0: Right, civil rights movement. And that's kind of what he's talking about. I don't have time to participate in the civil rights movement. Why? I'm too busy preaching the gospel. Preachers are not called to be politicians. I wonder who he was talking about. Preachers not being called to be politicians. Preachers not really called to be inside. He wasn't just talking about himself. I think it was probably a dig at those preachers who were participating in civil rights. Why is Jerry Falwell so down on politics? We could just end there and say, look, that's right. We should just stay and stick with churches and stay out of politics. That's not our place. My critique of this would be, of course, could it be that the reason that preachers are not supposed to engage in politics is because the politics of this particular time didn't appeal to Jerry Falwell? minorities seeking their rights. That's not something that we should be worried about according to Jerry Falwell. But the more ironic part of it is just look 15 years later. This is Jerry Falwell 15 years later starting the moral majority ushering in the beginning of the presidency of Ronald Reagan instrumental in the Republican movement of the 80's. Founder of the moral majority and he says the goal of the moral majority here's what we're supposed to do exert a significant influence on the spiritual and moral direction of our nation mobilizing grassroots moral Americans in one clear and effective voice informing the moral majority what is going on behind their backs in Washington and in state legislatures across the country lobbying intensely in Congress to defeat left-wing social welfare bills that will further erode our precious freedom Pushing for positive legislation such as that to establish the Family Protection Agency. Helping the moral majority in local communities to fight pornography, homosexuality, the advocacy of immorality in school textbooks, and other issues facing each and every one of us. Just 15 years, what a difference a decade makes, right? Suddenly in firm control of how Christians should be engaged. In fact, one of the criticisms of the moral majority was, You couldn't really tell, was it a religious organization? Was it a political organization? And for a long time, people didn't know. Uh, Some people to this day think the IRS should have investigated. What was it exactly? didn't seem like it should be what it claimed to be. No one really knew. And of course, its headquarters were basically out of his church at the time that was in Lynchburg, Virginia. What's the difference? What's going on here? It just seems like it depends on what the issue is. By the way, if anybody could tell me what the immorality in school textbooks would be, it would be kind of interesting to know. I've always wanted to go to a good book burning, you know? Those immoral textbooks. Here's a quote from Ralph Reed, who was for a long time the director of the Christian Coalition. And in reflecting on his time as head of one of the right-wing conservative organizations religiously based he has a reflection He says this my religious beliefs never changed my views on the political issues to any degree because my political philosophy was already well developed. What is he saying in plain English? I was already an American. I had an ideology. I had a political place and then I became a Christian. We looked at this a few weeks ago. This very idea of how we are shaped sometimes by things that have nothing to do with our faith. And these things shape us to the point that our faith is actually shaped, not the other way around. So in this case, you could say that what Ralph Reed was saying, one of the clear leaders in the Christian coalition, I was American, I was conservative, I was a Republican, And when I became a Christian, those other things were so firmly entrenched in me, it didn't make much of a difference. Some people, like Ralph Reed and others, kind of gave up in some ways, kind of walked away from some of their earlier political involvement because they saw this kind of futility that maybe their faith had not shaped their politic, but their politic had certainly shaped their faith. Tonight I want to see how that happens on both the left and the right and get your critique of it as well. I want you to be thinking for a moment. Just to show you an example of how our politics shapes our faith. Here are some of the priorities of the moral majority. Now they had others. You could expect that they had a whole line of family values and things like that that they were concerned about. But just think about this for a moment. Here's a list of some things that the moral majority was really worried about. Defeating liberal incumbents increasing evangelical and fundamentalist voter registration, fighting communism and communist takeover, opposing the Equal Rights Amendment, opposing nuclear disarmament, and collecting signatures to pardon Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North. Anyone know who Oliver North is? No, yeah, you weren't born yet, I don't think, maybe. Oliver North was the guy who was caught by the government. He was, he was actually doing covert operations for the government, selling arms to Iran, so that they could send money to the Contras in Nicaragua who we were not supposed to be helping. So of course it makes sense to sell arms to Iran who would then funnel money to the Contras. These are just some of the priorities that they thought about. Were those stated priorities
1: as well? Kind of like the university that you mentioned?
0: The ones that I thought were the most surprising stated priorities were opposing equal rights and opposing nuclear disarmament which I think at one point we're in their top ten, if not in their top five. So think about this, if you're starting an organization that's somehow supposed to bring the values that you care about as a Christian to politics, you're stating I oppose equal rights for women. And I oppose nuclear disarmament. And those are stances that are supposed to be somehow connected to your faith. <clears throat> Clearly something was going wrong. And actually, some people looking back at the moral majority probably think that's probably why it lasted for about 10 to 15 years, although most of its influence was pretty much done by the end of the decade it started, because people looked at it and thought, we're all over the map here. And I'm not really sure what this has to do with what we started with. It sounds like you're adv- advocating an American agenda over and above sometimes, or a conservative agenda, or a Republican agenda, over and above maybe a Christian agenda. Yes. Yes. Sure, the Equal Rights Amendment was trying to push through a, kind of a cleanup civil rights movement, basically to say that women had to have equal pay and equal rights in every way, and there was, this was a controversial thing for a while because people thought this shouldn't be legislated. So there were women who were advocating for it, and there were a lot of people who were advocating against it, uh, and including many conservatives because they thought this is just another civil rights movement, this is another effort to take away our freedom. The courts eventually did it anyway. The courts eventually imposed all these things, Anyway, but it's just an interesting period in time when we were debating, like, should women have equal, and there's still this debate to this day. Should women have equal pay? Do they, is there a glass ceiling? But at some point, they actually wanted to have an amendment to the Constitution. All right, so here's the questions for tonight. What is the allure of politics for Christians? What is it that gets us so much about it? And why have Christians been unable to effectively engage politics? I think that most of us probably think it's not very effective. I'm gonna make that case tonight. Here's my answers to the first one for you. I just want to give you something to think about. I can stand here all day and say that we should not be political. The problem is there's been such great examples that constantly bring us back, and they're so alluring to us about politics in general. I just put up three on the screen. Like slavery was ended, in part, through a lot of political action. Yes, there was a war involved. But I'm not just talking about the US, I'm talking about even as we looked at the, the illustration of Wilberforce in Britain, so if slavery was going on today I don't think there's any doubt that that we would be in favor of some legislative action to end it. Maybe you wouldn't go fight or maybe you wouldn't actually campaign but you would at least be in favor of some legislative action to end it. Same thing with civil rights. There were people who marched but there're also people who just supported it and supported the types of leaders that passed civil rights legislation. Even the welfare benefits that we give or that we've had As things came along, people think, yes, I think there should be a minimum level of care for certain people. That's the allure of politics. I think to sum it up, I'm not going to go through a long discussion of it. We're always so tempted to think if I could just get a law to do this, it would be the most convenient way to solve the problem. That's what our allure is. It's always like just outside of our reach. I don't know what your ill is. I don't know what your issue is. Everyone has something they're very deeply concerned about and they think is not being addressed in this world. And I think sometimes we think, can't we just convince enough people to end this or to do this or to pay for this or to fund this? I've seen it all the time. You've seen it like even in the issue like when Bono and U2 and all those people in his data organization, they try to lobby governments to forgive debt relief in Africa. They think if only we could just get the countries to cancel the debt. That would let people off of billions and billions of dollars of obligations and give them a chance to start over. You think that should be a strange thing to say, here's a rock band trying to, to lobby countries at the national level. But they just feel like, if only you would, and I think that's the lure. So I'm not going to deny that it has some sort of temptation for us always to think, if only we could X. The question is, why haven't we been able to do it effectively? And should we even be involved, even though that temptation is there? Here's a quote from uh, Ron Sider, who wrote The Scandal of Evangelical Politics. And he says this, All this, and when I say all this, I mean like everything we've been talking about in this series, because I feel this way sometimes when I'm standing up here looking at your faces. All this may sound so complicated that some conclude, forget it. We don't need all that highfalutin intellectual stuff. I love that word, highfalutin. I think Exodus could just be described as highfalutin sometimes. Like there's so much of like, who cares? Like move on, let's do something with our life. Forget it. We don't need all that highfalutin intellectual stuff, but... It is simple historical fact that political decisions have a huge impact, for good or bad, on the lives of literally billions of people. The New Testament explicitly teaches that Christ is now ruler, ruler of the kings of the earth. Christians who know that must submit every corner of their lives to their wonderful Lord. Ron Sider is somebody that I respect a lot for writing a book that tries to come up with a cohesive political philosophy for Christians. Ron Sider is not a conservative, I would say he's left of center for sure, but even his book comes back over and over to the issue of if only we could get this right, it would be a very powerful tool. I feel like he is also under the lure of the same thing. We're always just a little bit away from getting the right laws, the right things to get society organized the way God would want it to do. Never mind that as Christians we could never agree on what that would be, but it's still a powerful tool so we know what the allure is why have we been unable to actually see it come to pass some people would say it's because we lack leadership and unity as a church there's nobody really speaking for us all we're all over the place every church does its own thing even denominations when we belong to them which is rare these days They're kind of doing their own things. They don't really agree. We don't come by as a united body anymore. We really don't have any leadership. Nobody's really the leader of us. Maybe we lack a coherent or consistent philosophy, as Ron Sider would argue. We just kind of make it up as we go along. 1965, Jerry Falwell's like, stay out of it. It has nothing to do with it. 1980, he's leading the movement. We don't know. One of Jerry Falwell's aides said our, our approach was ready, shoot, aim. That was our approach. We didn't know we were moving too fast. Or maybe it's because we have overly subscribed to politics as a solution, which is Hunter's view. Here's how you could see it graphically. In society, you could say that politics and government is one thing that takes place. It's one sphere of, of society. But there are others. There are other things that occupy society like the church, like business, like media. The arts. And see, our temptation is to ignore the role of any other societal institution and just think, you know what? Nothing else matters. So that temptation I was talking about is to make politics so big and government so big that it is society. It's the same thing. It obscures everything. What I'm trying to say basically is we take the church and replace it with a political solution as if the church couldn't do anything without politics. Or we forget that maybe there's a business solution instead of turning to the government or some law. Or maybe that we could influence culture more through the arts or media. And by the way, there's a lot of other societal institutions I didn't put up there because I don't have room to fit them all. So we end up just believing that the only answer is politics. So let's look at what the sides do. What I'm going to do is I'm going to show you some critiques that I've collected from the different books about what's going on on both the Christian right and the Christian left, and I'd like you to join in and give me your own. Let me go through a couple, then you guys can add some. Here's some critiques of our mistakes that we have made on the Christian right. First, the political ideology dominates theological considerations. We've already seen that. I mean, first you're conservative, or you want limited government, or you care about a free market, or you want democracy, and that's what you're going for, you're not really trying to spend time thinking, wait a minute, if I'm really going to act out as a Christian, what would that mean? Another one we've talked about in the last couple of weeks is there's this nostalgia for a mythical past. Like there's this era that if we could just go back to it somehow, everything would be okay. It would solve all problems if we could go back to the 1950s or the 1850s or the 1750s. Some other period of time. If we can go back to the Great Awakening, if we can go back to some period, that would make everything better. That's... One of the criticisms that's leveled at this type of political engagement. In the second week, we saw that there's an insistence that there is a Christian America somewhere. We just can't find it anymore, but it was there at one point. And it will be there in the future if we just live by a certain doctrine. It was Christian, no matter what anybody says, no matter what the deistic past might be. It was predominantly Christian. We want it that way. It needs to be that way in the future. We've been victimized. We're the victims. We've lost everything. We're losing our faith. We're losing our families. We're losing our ability to practice our religion. So most of the politics comes from a place of victimization. There's blame and suspicion of others. It's always the others, people point out. It's the liberals. It's the secularists. It's all the immigrants. There's something else going on in society that's causing all of this to happen. And you'll notice there's always a language of they're taking away from us our right to practice, our right to preach. our right. There's like somebody's taking it. There's somebody else, and there's never an inward look as like, are we in any way participating in this? Some of the actions and statements that have been made have actually led to more retaliation against Christians than there was before. You could probably think of some of the statements that have been made on television that when you hear them, you cringe, and you think, I can't believe somebody just said that. I can't believe that somebody just said that the earthquake in Haiti was because they worshipped the devil. That's the reason that the earthquake came, right? And it's some prominent Christian leader, and all of a sudden, all of us are like, "Just I can't believe that we're going to be retaliated against once more. They're going to think that I'm think that way because somebody else just said it again." <laughs> For much of the 20th century, there was an active effort to stay away from intellectual pursuits, kind of a fear of intellectualism. And then suddenly, at the very end of the 20th century, we all jumped in to politics and tried to make an understanding of it, but it was kind of too late. As I said, even the moral majority kind of admitted some of the leaders in it. It was kind of like, ready, shoot, and then we aimed later. We didn't really, we were just trying to get in with all this newfound power. For those of you who know what this is, there's a premillennial dispensationalist outlook on society's future. If that's too highfalutin, let me just explain it this way. The world's going to end. Jesus is coming soon. It doesn't matter. It's all going to burn. Why are we worried about saving this place or saving society? Let's just get out of here. It's all going to happen now. Problem is, for most of this, that was said in the 1940s, the 1950s, the 1960s, the 1970s, the 1980s, 1980s, I could just go on till now. And so the idea is, why worry about it at all? Because this is the end. And it's supposed to fall apart. Everything in society is supposed to slide downwards. And we're seeing it happen. So in part, the victimization and suspicion of others kind of feeds into that theology, and the other way around. If you see it, you think, why even come up with a strategy? It's all done. Another criticism, there's been a close association with the Republican Party. Actually, most people who observe this would say the Republican Party has used the Christian right. Kind of used them in a way to kind of list, you know, like, you sure, just get all your voters, vote for us, you got nobody else to vote for, so vote for our people. But they've never really listened and given them the political power they've wanted. There's been people like James Dobson who've lamented that half of the people in the Republican Party are values voters that would vote with me if I told them what to do. Maybe he didn't say that last part exactly the way I've paraphrased it. But he's been frustrated that if half the voters are those kinds of Christians, then why isn't half the agenda set by us? Why do you keep ignoring our issues? And that's actually a very good question. And finally, there's been this real political schizophrenia in the party strongly pro-life, which I support on issues. But on certain issues, it gets really strange. Like you have people who are saying, I'm pro-life and I want to end all abortion and yet support war and going to war. Some who will even have a schizophrenic view about euthanasia at the end of life. Or as some other people on the other side of the aisle would point out to them and say, it's weird that you would have such a strong view on abortion and ignore the other millions of people who are dying of hunger or preventable disease. Why is that not a pro-life issue? Those are the criticisms. You want to add some more?
2: Um, I have two I would add. One I think is generally a very narrow interpretation of biblical text. Um, well, not really being open to multiple perspectives, multiple interpretations, thinking that, you know, this is the inspired word of God, and there's one way to read it, and this is what it means, and I'll tell you, and versus, oh, well, we don't really know what this means, let's discuss this, let's, oh, I can see how they think that, and they interpret it that way, or how does this culture interpret it, versus, like, this is the way to interpret it, um, which I think poses some problems, um, as well as, generally, a lack of Um, lack of care or lack of uh, efforts towards really important things in Scripture, like the poor, the foreigners, the the orphans, that type of thing, just a general forsaking of that. Not in every case, but generally. Okay.
1: Martin. Even more than just with the biblical times, Just in general, I've felt a lot of times the Christian right doesn't want to have a conversation, kind of what you said, but not just the Bible with almost anything. They kind of have things set, and they don't even want to come to the table to discuss or to be open. And, of course, that's a generalization, so that's not everyone, but I've at least experienced that quite a bit, and that seems to be, because it's difficult to even come to a middle ground or, or to have a conversation.
0: Okay, yes. I feel like a lot of the decisions that are made are, um, coming from a sense of uh, like selfishness. So everyone, like, a political issue, like, how does this affect me? Rather than how
2: does this affect society? I feel like that kind of the schizophrenia, a the sense of victimization, I feel like that just kind of weaves through all of me.
0: Yeah. I think there's a sense of anger, and it comes from this victimization or people taking stuff. I think it's a very curious movement in some ways in my mind. Like, for example, the the the, the people they listen to the most are not people of faith. And that's curious to me. Like if you listen to today, the radical right is very, very entrenched in the views of somebody like Glenn Beck or Rush Limbaugh. Neither of which are Christians. Uh, but, but, it, but if you go to a Christian bookstore, their books are often there. Like, this is a strange confusion again. Is it conservative? Is it Republican? I don't know what it is, but I know that it doesn't come from any biblical text. Like limited government, like we looked at that example, of that university that its mission was so concerned about, limited government and, and, and endorsing capitalism. Like, I'm not against capitalism. You know, I teach in the business school. I think it's a very good system. But I don't know that it's endorsed in some sort of way by the Bible. Okay, let's look at some positives, though. Are there positives? I think there are some. I think they've truthfully identified that America is in moral decline, something that we do not address fairly when we deal with conservatives. America is in moral decline. What we're going to do about it, if we could do anything at all, is a different matter. But at least they've rightly called that out. I think they've also identified that America is becoming more secular. Whatever, Whether we were ever a Christian nation or not, which as you know in here, we've taken the position that that's probably not the case. We were primarily a nation of Christians though. There were a lot of Christians around here and we're having less and less of them. And I don't think that you could say that has no impact. I think it will have a negative impact in the long run. They've at least identified that. And I think that's very good. We should be fair and say, yes, that's something that should concern us. That if we live in a country that is rejecting more and more, whether they were Christian principles or not, but just rejecting Christianity today wholesale, that should affect us just because we might become an oppressed minority. But I think it should also concern us because I think the future of our country is in part dependent on how much we still adhere to God and God's laws. I mean, I don't agree that God has a most favored nation called America. I don't believe that we've replaced Israel as some conservatives believe we have. I don't I think that's loony. But I still think that God looks down and says, that's good that there are still people who worship me in that country. And I think it'd be a strange reading of the Bible to think that doesn't matter to God. I think they've been a strong voice, and I've said on a selected number of the priorities of Christ. And that was kind of the comment that you made. But they're just ignore other things, but they've been strong on some things. If you're troubled by abortion, They've been very strong on that. And I think that's good that they've been strong on that and some other causes. But it's been selected. And again, you would say, how often is that because of the other beliefs, ideological or political, than it is really because of a Christian perspective? And far and away among Christians, they've been the most successful. I mean. Their power peaked by most estimates in 2004 with that presidential election. I don't think they're done. In fact, right now you can see that they've kind of been co-opted into the whole Tea Party movement somehow. So I don't know exactly what's going to come out of that. Is it going to be more political or religious when it's done? I have no idea. But they're kind of in there somewhere in that mix. But they had a very successful run and were very influential. So you at least have to say that's a positive. They showed us it could be done if we were going to do it. How about the Christian left? Here's some critiques. I think that a lot of the leading voices in the Christian left, the Christian progressives, whether they're the mainline liberals of the middle 20th century or they're the more progressive evangelical liberals that are coming along now, is a lot of their voices are born out of anger as well. They're more against things than they're for things right now. Now, their anger is directed at their brothers on the right. They're so frustrated with the image of Christianity that's been painted that it comes out of an angry response. It's a reaction. It's not a positive action. And I think we should think about that for a moment because I hear that in here a lot too. In so much of the discussions we have, there's so much of a reaction that we end up coming a little bit too far sometimes. Yes, AJ. Um,
1: I think also with the Christian left, um, instead of like, um, whenever there's a, an argument or some type of issue, instead of looking at the issue first, they say, well, what does the Christian right say? And then we say the opposite of that. And so I feel a lot of times um, the Christian left is more pick, more just wanting to prove the right wrong instead of actually doing some progressive change. And then, I don't know, it can understand that frustration and that's born out of anger, like you said. But I feel like that's not constructive.
0: Yeah, I'm not saying they don't have a reason to be frustrated with all that the right has done to the name of Christianity and to the name of Christ. But there are times when I think they, you're right. They do just take the opposite side just to take it, just to be provocative, or just out of so much frustration that they just want to show they're different. I've seen people on the left make some pretty strange arguments. Uh, And they can't even get out of the argument. They just know they have to take this position. When they're asked to justify it, they start doing a lot of dancing. Here's another one. Many desire to be just as politically involved as those on the right. But they haven't gained the ability to do that in the Democratic Party. Hunter criticizes Jim Wallace of Sojourners directly as somebody who's trying so hard to gain the kind of acceptance that the religious right has gained, but to do it for the left. And I will give it the religious right that they have been politically active and politically powerful at times. So there's this feeling that like, we don't like what they do, but we'd like to have the position they have. So far, the Democratic Party hasn't given them that position. It's left them in a strange place where they're almost asking for it. They're almost pandering for it, some would say. Some of the positions that came out from more left groups during the Obama campaign, some people read as trying to pander to the left like, Hey, give us a seat at the table. We'll help you bring in some Christian voters. Like, let us in finally. We want to have the same power that those guys do on the other side. And I think that Democrats wised up a little bit after 2004 and 2006 and thought, yeah, we should give these guys a seat at the table. But I think if you think that the right has been used by the Republican Party, you've got to kind of see how the, how the Democrats think of the Christians within their wing. This is controversial. And it's more highfalutin words. (laughs) A criticism has been leveled at the left that there's an unexamined reliance on a hermeneutic or an exegesis that applies the major and minor prophets to the modern world. In plain English, what that means is sometimes to justify a position, they'll just throw open the Old Testament and say, see, it says this, and that applies to America without actually doing the work of deciding does that really apply? Is that really right? An example so I could be concrete. Somebody will just throw open like a minor prophet like Amos and say, see what it says there and then see what it now we do in the world and they don't really do the work that's involved. There is some work involved. I'm not saying you can't apply it. But the criticism that's been leveled, not by me in this case, but I understand it and I kind of agree with it. The minor prophets were sent to a theocracy which was Israel or Judah that was directly ruled by God, had rules to follow by God and was told to follow the law. I don't know that you could apply that to America. I don't know that you could apply that to a pluralistic democracy in the Western world. At least not if you believe what most of the Christian left believe, which is that we're not supposed to be imposing a theocracy. So it becomes kind of this strange situation. You don't want to impose a theocracy, but you're using principles that applied to a theocracy and the prophets that were sent to the theocracy. Another example would be on immigration. There's always just like a quick reference to, well, it says that you've got to treat the alien in your midst, and the criticism would be, have you really read that carefully? Because if you look at that text carefully, it's not talking about immigration. It's talking about people in your midst that are already there. It's not telling people to break laws and then somehow deal with it, for example, would be the criticism. It says very clearly, assimilate those in your midst, and they follow the same laws that you do. So... I just wanna point out that sometimes it's easy just to start quoting from the Old Testament some standard of justice, and the criticism is, don't go so fast, slow down, maybe you need to do a little bit of the work there. Yes?
2: The only thing I would say is like, not that I think that's untrue necessarily, but I think it's very true of the right too. so that doesn't make sense. I mean, maybe not for always for the major or minor privates, but like, in general, I think a lot of Christians do that. So I think it's kind of weird that they would just
0: put on I think the right doesn't even go in the Old Testament, might be the, the, the point. Uh, and if they do cite things, they're probably citing limited parts of the New Testament. So you're right that they'll do it even more, but in a different area completely. Um, and by the way, I could point you to some of these if you want to read into them. Like there's a fascinating discussion of what does it mean to care for the alien in your midst? It's like that literally mean we should be for or against certain immigration policies? Or that have nothing to do with it. Like, is it not a theory that we just import wholesale and drop into our current debates about what's going on in Arizona, for example? Here's another criticism. There's been a focus on the social gospel that minimizes the emphasis on belief. So there's been an elevation of orthopraxy over orthodoxy, practice over belief. and Some people would say that's a criticism because that carries into our political views. That let's just get out there and do stuff, and we get diluted in our distinctiveness and our belief saltiness and lightness because we're just doing. And in this kind of modern environment that we're in, everybody's doing. Corporations are doing, the Peace Corps, I mean, everybody's doing. Another criticism there's a waning influence and presence of mainline denominations. So, this is talking about a specific group of Christian left. These are the mainline denominations like Presbyterian, Congregationalist, Methodist, those kind of guys that had a very strong presence in the middle of the 20th century and now are kind of on the way out. Most people believe that they're in severe decline. So they were once the best advocates of the Christian left. They actually advocated many of the social policies and they were very powerful. They had lobbying groups. The criticism is their powers in decline. I don't know if that's a criticism actually. Some people would say that's because they accomplished what they wanted to do. But here's the reverse criticism. When they accomplished what they wanted to do because they were so focused on doing and not believing, the churches were kind of done. Once they got through the social programs they were really going for, most of their members had left. They had either left the faith or they left to join non-denominational churches because they thought, well, if all we're doing is just advocating doing stuff, what happens when it's done? Where's the other part of the faith? And so they left those churches to join churches that are focusing more on believing. Unfortunately, those churches are mostly focusing on believing and not doing. Criticism is there's been an acceptance of a postmodern ideology, especially among younger evangelical left thinkers. And there's still this weird belief that the government can somehow solve all the problems, especially in government programs. So despite their rejection of so much of what's going on on the right, they're still looking to the government somehow to fix the problems. If the government could pass this program, if we could do this thing, if we could have health care, if we could have welfare, we could solve all of society's problems that way. That's the critique. Anyone want to offer any others? Yes. Can you unpack the second door
1: Postmodern ideologies and, and why it was leveled
0: as a criticism. It's leveled as a criticism because the idea is that so many of the people on the left now have accepted more of, hey, we're in a plural society, so we really can't make strong truth claims anymore, which is really the pinnacle of like what a postmodern ideology is going to do, is say, this really can't know anything for sure anymore. And we've also repackaged knowledge, so it requires this absolute certainty, then you can't know anything. So because of that, you go, well, because we can't know anything and we really don't know what the truth is, like, let's just live and let live. And some people have said that dilutes your belief even further because you're not going to take absolute positions on something. I was talking to Morgan earlier about one of the leaders in the movement who was asked point blank, like, you say you oppose abortion. Why won't you advocate for a law that, that, that outlaws abortion?" the way that you say that you oppose slavery and you actually hold Wilberforce as your hero. So that was the direct question that was posed. And there was like five minutes of dancing, you know, because what the person couldn't say was, if it's wrong, then we should outlaw it, which they said about slavery. So it wasn't like I'm trying to impose my value of if it's wrong, then outlaw it. It's like their view was this was wrong and we outlawed it. So they're saying, therefore, if this is wrong and you've stated that, Why do you believe that we shouldn't outlaw it? And the answer really comes down to, well, we can't really impose our beliefs on other people. And that may be a valid political theory to say that Christians are not supposed to impose their views on other people. But remember, this is the same person that thought that slavery was wrong and that was okay to impose on other people. So there's this weird, like, you know, truth is kind of fluid in this area. I think part of the answer was because you'd be kicked out of the Democratic Party for saying that. You know, that would be the real answer. It's like, you can't, Give an interview where you say, I'm against abortion and I'd be for a constitutional amendment to ban it. Because then all that power you were trying to get, they would just go, no, no, you, you, you got to go now. Here's an example of what I was talking about, about the ideas of minor prophets being imported. And Jim Wallace said, if biblical prophets like Amos and Isaiah had read the news about what happened to child tax credits for low-income families, for example, they would surely be out screaming on the White House lawn about the justice of God and be quickly led away by the Secret Service. I hear in that statement kind of the same kind of conflating of like what the right does all the time. Conflating like our policies, our ideology with somehow how God is gonna work it through. Seems a little backwards. I don't know that God would have sent Amos to talk about the low income tax credit. I'm not sure of that the way he is. I'm not sure it directly applies. But there are some positives. Here's one. I think the Christian left has returned a very strong value that we've lost somewhere and brought back some balance to Christian political voice. I mean, for a long time, many of you were kind of frustrated by this, that if you were gonna be political and Christian, it meant one thing, and most of us rejected it and didn't like it. They've brought back a balance to the discussion, even in their anger, insisting that there is another voice. Number two, I think they've reignited an emphasis on practice. I mean, as much as I said they favored practice over belief, there was a period of time where we had lost it altogether. We were so focused. You could hear it in Jerry Falwell's statement, like, I'm too focused on winning souls to go help the Civil Rights Movement. Okay. I mean, I don't see why Jesus would care about people who are systematically enslaved and then after they're enslaved, a hundred years of government-sanctioned racism and segregation. I don't know why Jesus would care about that you could see that they brought back a focus that I think had been lost on practice. And the same thing about social justice. It was missing. And I say from recent theology, it was missing from our politics and our recent theology because it seemed like the mainline churches championed it and then they kind of fell out of any kind of public spotlight and none of us were doing anything about it. So social justice for like 20 or 30 years just kind of disappeared. It wasn't really on the scene. So that's another positive is they've given us an alternative to the mainline experience, which was in decline, is still in decline. So anybody who was doing something was a declining church. And there are still churches out there who believe that. Like if you're going to be out there trying to do stuff for society, you're going to be one of those declining churches. Actually, these people are actually trying to do something and maintain their faith at the same time. And I think it's been very positive that they've brought back younger people into the political engagement for Christians because they've given them an alternative you can see that people are attracted to this, especially in your ages, in your generation, that they've actually been able to say, hey, you can still follow Christ and care about the earth and care and steward for it. Or you can still follow Christ. In fact, you must follow Christ and care for the poor or the widow or the orphan. And that language is finally back after many years of dormancy because of this kind of political engagement and, of course, church engagement. They're kind of one and the same. And... I think in the last five years, they've actually been engaging the Democratic Party to actually remember that value voters might still support that party. You know, it's hard to imagine, but if you think back, the movement that started a lot of social action and Christianity in America in the early part of the 20th century was the Democratic Party. They were the ones that stood for All of the things that they have now, but it was based on a Christian ethic. If you go back to the people like William Jennings Bryan who ran for president three times at the earlier part of the century, they were pushing for a very Christian vision of what it meant to care for society. And The Democrats, after that period of time, after about 1925, lost it, lost that focus, and they're finally getting it back. All right, more positives from the people on the Christian left? Yes.
2: I would say, in general, um, it seems that the Christian left is at least more relevant to uh, or can relate more to the people who are secular people of other faith traditions um, and are more accessible and also, yeah, can, like, dialogue more with them. So I think that's definitely the positive.
0: In this particular case, they've been very loud on the issue of the mosque, which we started this whole series with that they've taken the positions that if you're going to be for freedom of religion, that means freedom for everyone. And I think that's probably a right witness to make if you're gonna be politically involved in that conversation. That sounds right. Because they're acknowledging that it isn't a theocracy and we live in a plural society. Okay, I think that's positive. All right, enough information for a moment. Here's the question for you tonight. If we think that one view is that we cannot Solve the world's problems through politics. That's one view, and the other one is we're constantly tempted to somehow engage politically to solve the next problem. I want to know which side you kind of fall on.
1: Yeah, I would say I I don't think I what you brought up at the beginning. The church needs to have the greatest role um, in and and we can't. I I don't think we can ultimately solve the world's problems. Like I think that. That can even be a heresy to think that we can bring about God's kingdom as opposed to God bring about God's kingdom. So, but we have to have a very active role. So I'm not saying a passive don't care because I deeply care about many things that would be qualified as politics or something like that. Uh, so I think there's a role, but uh, no, politics is not. It doesn't heal people. It doesn't bring people. You know, it's, it's not the solution. God
0: has chosen the church. So. Okay. Yeah.
2: It's, like, a hard issue for me to have, like, picked a stance, per se. I probably, at least right now, lean more towards being somewhat politically active. Um, partially because, in a lot of cases, I think, like, silence is just, like, endorsing the status quo. Um, and so speaking out is important. Especially when things, at least in your view, are really not right, or really unjust, or really violent, or, or something like that. Um, and and also, like I know a lot of Christians tend to like do du- like make a dualism, like in a person, like, they have the soul and then they have the body, and the soul's what's important. So, like even in the first quote or second quote, you're looking at like talking about like this inward thing and like the external isn't important and that just doesn't make any sense um like we are both like and and so what we're living in directly affects our soul like whether that's facing hunger whether that's facing violence whether you know any of these things and so that is important and that's our experience and that's what we're living in and that's what we're engaging in and so, and we're supposed to care about people, and these policies and things like that affect people. So I, I think it's important, but at the same time, like, yeah, you can't put all of your hope on that, because whatever laws you make, that doesn't necessarily change society. It may be a law, but people don't necessarily follow it. Um, as well as, I mean, the laws don't get to the root of the problem of a lot of these things. I mean, some of this is, like, greed is the root of this problem, you know? or. Um, selfishness, or lust, or like these different things are the root of these problems. So you can make a law, but that's not really going to change it. It's just a lot of people would be doing illegal things. But not to say that it's of no point, because I think it is of value. I mean, at least if you have a law about it, then you can say, no, this is why you can't do it, and you can work to stop it. So, I mean, I think it's valuable, definitely, but not that you'd put all of your hope in that.
0: I think all of us know there are injustices going on in the world. We also know that society is in decline in some ways morally. I think we see things around us that Christ cares about that we should be involved in. I think there's no doubt about that. That he put us, I mean humanity, on earth to live out the things that he wanted us to do. God constantly partners with humanity to accomplish his purposes in this world. That's why we're the body and he's the head. Like We're the hands and feet, the physical, tangible expression of Christ in the world. There's no doubt about that. The question I'm trying to ask you tonight in this whole series is, by what means are we going to do that? The church has plenty to do. There's plenty of ways we could go about it. And the question I come back to over and over is, is this the way to do something? Some of you have said yes, and some of you have said no. and That's fine. What I'm trying to get you to do tonight is to think. Because frankly, you probably won't think about this much after we're done with this series. We'll go on. But after this is done, most of us will not consider this question again. And that's the tragedy of it all. Because I know there's something you care about whether it's poverty or whether it's sex slavery or whether it's some injustice like abortion or something like that, there's something you care about that matches Christ's concern for this world, and you may have a burning passion to end it. Imagine getting the United States government to committing $500 million to LifeWater. That's a political solution, just like, hey, rather than running races, which is fun, (laughs) but if I could just convince the government to dig wells or do these things or fund this thing, like the faith-based initiative program. Some people thought that was a great political thing. There are a lot of nonprofits doing great work. It's time to end the fact that the government can't support them with government money. That was a political change that helped a lot of nonprofits. So there are things you care about. Is this the way to do it? Yes. Can
2: you talk a little bit more about
1: when you say like you don't feel like we will circle back to these things? Because I like to me initially it doesn't seem like that's true. It seems like we totally would. And so but I respect your opinion. So I'd love to hear more about Why do you feel like that? Because maybe that would
0: incite us. I think the reason is, as probably Ron Sider writes really well, it is so hard to sit down and have a reasoned, well-thought-out political philosophy on how to engage and when to engage and when to stay out. And most people don't ever sit down and do that. And by the way, his book is an effort to try to teach Christians to do it. And as much as I love reading his writing, like I'm reading and I'm reading and I'm reading and I think nobody's going to put up with this, like going through all this. You know, because again, even though he's the one that used that highfalutin word, it's in a way, some some of it is highfalutin. Or I read somebody like Hunter's book, which is even more, I mean, that's written at like, I don't know, some PhD level. You know, like when I'm reading that book, it's hard to read. It's got so much interesting stuff, but it's not an easy read. And that's why I'm saying it, because most of us would think, I guess the answer is it takes a lot of thought if you're gonna engage the solutions to the issues that we care about in this world through some sort of political action. It takes thought and planning and money and resources and a life committed to join certain causes and most of us actually will end up like marching through, doing a lot of great things by the way, but probably won't look at this tool and say should we use it or not because it takes really sitting down and coming up with a rational, well thought out and consistent philosophy to actually be effective. I really do believe that we still have to cross the issue and each one of you has to make this decision. Can Christians actually make a difference? Do we even have the ability? If we have the ability, is politics really the sum total of society? And I of course said it isn't, it shouldn't be. We've made it the sum total of our efforts in public and places. It shouldn't be. There are other ways that the church can be the church. And there are other areas of society that we haven't really investigated, like Christians have been absent from business solutions. Christians have been absent from artistic solutions, media solutions. There's so many other ways we could impact society. We've mostly been absent. So we have to walk through that in some way and you have to make those decisions. I'm not gonna make them for you. I'm just presenting this question of what should our relationship be to society? How do we do it? Can we affect it? And if we can, it's Is political action the way to do it? Maybe not even for you, but just your ideology. Do I support the different political movements or do I say, as some Christians do, you know what, the best way for the church to do its mandate is just live out its existence as the church. And next week when we come back, we're gonna look one more time at that view. What some people call the Neo-Anabaptist view. The view of like Yoder and Hauerwas. We're gonna come back to that And another view offered by Hunter that says, you know what, maybe there's other ways than just right and left and all sides looking for political solutions. Maybe we need to just remember what it means to be Christ's disciples in the world. And looking a little bit next week as, what did Jesus have his positions about social power and politics when he was on earth? Could we take any cues from that example? So that's why there'll be some scripture next week. We'll come back to actually... Stop citing a bunch of sociologists and political scientists and cite some scripture, okay? Maybe try to make some sort of uh, cake out of all these ingredients that uh, we've been playing with for the last four or five weeks. Let's pray and close up. Lord, only your Holy Spirit can take each of these pieces and do something with it. Our task has been to break down things and look at them from all different angles. And right now, Lord, I feel like it's just before the dawn, like we're waiting for your spirit to reveal to us something that really sounds right to our hearts about the way you want us to move forward. Lord, we're so tempted by so many things in this world, the temptation of power, the temptation of our own reputation, the temptation of fame, the temptation of success, Lord, even the temptation of impact. All of these things are temptations. Jesus, that even you faced when you were tempted by the devil, to have some sort of relevance and power and impact and to shortcut to the end. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts this week. How would you have approached these questions? How would you want your disciples to live in the church? How would you want the church, your body in the world, to be? Have we followed too many of these temptations Have we forsaken what it means to be your disciples? Or, Lord, is this a tool that you want us to utilize to bring your reign to this earth, even through government and through politics? Holy Spirit, trouble us this week with those questions. And next week, surprise us. Surprise us that we could find answers that sound right to our hearts. pray this in your name. Amen.